When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact, baby! Hey everybody, welcome to Impact Theory. Today's guest is former NFL star and American Ninja Warrior Anthony Trucks. His journey to becoming a star athlete, though, is a crazy one. He was given up to foster care at the age of three, endured beatings, starvation, and forms of torture. But he was ultimately adopted and raised as the only black person in a loving, albeit poor, all-white family. He struggled to find his way through high school, but found sports, but also became a teen parent, then married his high school sweetheart, found his biological father at 21, but then had his NFL career cut tragically short by a devastating injury. But he then started a business, but it almost failed. Had twins at 25, but discovered his wife was having an affair, got a divorce, lost his adoptive mother and father, contemplated suicide, but didn't bounced back, remarried his ex-wife, and took what he had learned from his previous business and has now created a new and thriving business called Modified Identity, teaching others how to navigate the crazy shifts that we all have to learn how to deal with. Anthony, welcome to the show, dude. Hey, thanks for having me, man. You got, you got it down. You do it better than I do, Tom. Dude, your journey is insane. It's insane. Like legitimately, yeah. especially the stuff in your early life is is really crazy. You use the word torture. Um, yeah. that is, that is so hard to deal with. You and I know each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen you off camera a lot. You are so light and loving. How the hell is that true? Given what you've been through? Man, uh, that's, a, that's a question I'm trying to figure out every day, I think, which is beautiful because it's part of my work. Right. But, uh, if I go back to the roots of it, I think it's because I know what could have been my life. It, it's pushed in a place to every day be grateful. Like I have three kids now, right? One's 15, I got 10 year old twins and it still amazes me that they're in my home with me as odd as it may seem for a lot of people. Like that's a unique aspect. And so, uh, what, and wrong, like, give me clarity on that. What do you mean that they're in your home with you? That it's not well, a broken family? Not that it's a broken family, but my norm. I had, so that I was hanging oh, I my see. daughter and I was, I was like hugging her and you know, playing. I'm like, I told my wife, I said, I will never know what it's like to have that warmth from my father. Like I'll never, like I'm so close to them yet so emotionally distant from their experience. And so for me, it's like I'm, I'm presently aware of the world I live in and, and I always choose, like I know what took place. And if you look at statistics, any prison in America, 75% of the inmates are former foster kids, 50% uh, of the homeless population, former foster kids, like 1% of us graduate college. So statistically, I know I'm not supposed to have done, you know, anything I'm doing, we'll call it on paper. And so I'm presently aware of like, man, this is my real life. Like every day it's like, this is great. Like, I enjoy it. And I have ups and downs, man. Obviously, there's a lot that are within that. But then I also realized that a lot of my anger was, was cared because of what people had done to me, 
right? What my mom had did to me, my dad not being present, my wife having an affair, like all these things. And then I got to a point where as I got older, I realized, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people weren't given tools to work their life well. So I got to the point of having a true forgiveness when I realized that the actions they took weren't malicious to hurt me. It was like they just were doing the best they could and I happened to be affected negatively. That gave me a lot of release. And I've been like a joyous person ever since, man. I'm just a happy guy. <laughs> that, that's interesting. And, and I'd love to paint the picture because I think it would be easy. And if I'm really honest, dude, um, my initial inclination was to just assume that you had a naturally um, positive disposition. But mm. when I heard you talk about actually, no, when I was growing up, I was I was angry and there was yeah. aggression. And I don't know mm-hmm. how much you and I have talked about this, by the way. Um, so I worked with a kid that was in foster care. So mm-hmm. my audience has probably heard this story too many times. So I'll give it to you really fast. But um, I to get extra credit in college, I went to USC, which is in the middle of the inner city, South Central Los Angeles, just one of the mm-hmm. worst school districts in the country, a terrible neighborhood. Yeah. And um, so, of course, they give you the most problematic child. And when you had talked about being one of those problematic kids, I was like, whoa, I know what that looks like up close. This kid was tiny, but he was so aggressive and he would just go punch people for no reason, which for me was like I having grown up in a loving home, not having had much interaction with people that had been in foster care previous to that. Yeah, it it was so startling to me. Um, So I was that kid, man. I was that. I mean, sixth grade, I got in 16 fights in sixth grade. Yeah, I didn't it didn't really I wasn't allowed to go to summer camp because I was a flight risk. Like I was a problem. Wasn't Whoa. in trouble at the time. Like, we just don't want this guy in the woods because we don't know what could take place. So I was that kid, man. I just I had a lot of pent up anger. And what's even worse is throughout the system, I was never allowed to actually play any sports until I was 14 because my real mom had what's called parental rights. So she can make decisions on whether or not I did things, even so though you she, were in foster care. Exactly. So she didn't live there, but she was she's also just a pathological liar. She's a little bit mentally not there. And so she would make up these excuses. At one point, she blamed my foster parents for me being in foster care. It's a very weird dynamic. So my life for a lot of years was I had a lot of weird um, back and forth emotional issues with her uh, and what she would lie about. Like she wouldn't go to visitation. She'd make excuses. So I had a lot of energy there. And then I didn't feel like I fit because of how I looked in my household or at school. And so I had that same energy, man. It was just this really it's a dark cloud. Like it just it covers all base of your life and you get used to it. It's almost a normalcy inside of that crazy and it sucks. Now, when you say it's a dark cloud, what's the it being the outsider, not feeling like you fit in or what do you mean? by Imagine every day waking up feeling like you're like in just cold water all day, like just discomfort. Because I didn't have uh, I didn't have like a home. My three siblings, I didn't know where they were at. My real mom was just she's gone. So she'd do things like, you know, pack a bag wait by the window, I'll be there at eight o'clock to pick you up. And as a foster kid, all you want to do is go back with your family, whether or not they're good or not. And so I'd sit there and cry myself to sleep every night when she would do this. I'd wet the bed like with no like missing. I'd always wet the bed that night. So like at 14 years old, I'm still wet in the bed every night she'd do this. So I just had this, this dark emotional cloud of like never feeling comfort. Just I, I got bathed in crazy is what I tell people because you just you go through the days of just knowing like this doesn't feel good, but you get used to it. And that's where you're asking, how do you have joy? Like, I still know what that feeling is like. Mm. So the fact that I'm not there, it's like, oh, I feel so much better. Yeah, that that's interesting. And it's interesting to me that it came from a realization that they were doing the best that they could. Um, I think that people break into sort of two camps. One, you have, all right, people have done me wrong. And so I want to see them punished for that. And then you have people who are like, 
all right, that that isn't going to serve me. Pursuing that, it's not even about them. Like I'm not, yeah. the, one of the coolest things that I heard, and I don't even remember where I heard this and I'm going to paraphrase, but like that forgiveness isn't about the other person, it's about you, right? 100%. Um, and how old were you when you when that clicked for you? 32. Oh, shit. So this is recent. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. You're talking like so wait, did I? Ago. So I just happened to meet you after you had made this switch? Yeah, a couple years after. Yeah, yeah. About All right. Two, well, three years after. Now, now we have to get into some really interesting shit. How much of you, what you've accomplished as an athlete is really fucking extraordinary. And I've heard you talk about putting a chip on your shoulder. This yeah. is something that I talk um, to people a lot about. It's what I call the advanced class. So yeah. the, the basic shit is work hard, be diligent, do your thing, know mm-hmm. why you're doing it, right? Focus on the light yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I really soft do stuff. think people should spend 80% of their time. Yes, soft stuff. People should spend 80% of their time there. It's, it's far more beautiful. It, it lifts you up. It's elevating. Mm-hmm. But when I think, Anthony, about the times where I like, what was it that separated me from people who were smarter than me or that had more of a leg up than me? It was, dude, I had a chip on my shoulder. I was not prepared to let people be right about me. All the people that doubted mm-hmm. me, all the people that thought that I was just going to marshmallow my way through life. Like yeah. I really like was fuck that I'm going mm-hmm. to do something. I'm going to do something extraordinary. And it was it was in the hardest times that I would rely on the sort of um, the element of like a dark energy. And yeah. I'm curious to know how much of that propelled you to greatness. Yeah, man, I, uh, a, a heavy amount of it. Because it's this, this kind of like you said, right? There's the, the aspect of it all feels good and I'm driving for this stuff you can put on paper. But it's, it's different when you have those moments. And there's a statement in my work I say, it's what you create creates you. And when I was 15, I'd actually pretty much checked out. Like at 14, 15, I was like, I suck at football. My mom got diagnosed with MS before I lost her, you know, 17 years later. My older brother went to the military and I chalked it up and I was done. And I remember this girl in, in Mr. Howe's English class made this statement, and the statement was, was simple, but to me it was powerful. She said, well, the reason I'm so bad is because I'm in foster care. And it wasn't anything more than her saying an excuse out loud that I had been saying inside, and I just heard, like, that sounds stupid. Like, that's going to be the excuse because I had no control over the situation, but that directs my life to be a criminal, to be checked out. And so I had this desire, like, I'm just going to do what great people do. And it was players, right, great athletes who want to be a football player. So this was where this chip started coming and getting built. I spent like every single day, like I sat in my back to a football in the year 500 times. I ran every route I could. I lifted every weight I could. No idea what I was doing. But every day I got to this point where like I stacked and stacked and stacked to where like when I showed up the next year, Tom, you couldn't take this from me. Like you're not going to catch this ball. This is my ball to catch. You're not going to catch it. I'm going to knock it down. You're not going to tackle me. You don't deserve this today. And I'm going to tackle you because you don't get to. You don't get the right to run away from me. And it was just this, the sense of like I earned this. I own this. You don't get to take this from me. And that's where that darkness kind of peaked, peaked in. But I, you can't have that until you do that dark work. And I think people want to get there and be like, oh, I did a couple things. Like no, no, no. Like it ain't about a couple things. It's about this deeply seated, rooted sense of you where you do not have the right to take this future from me. And so that became this driver for me of every day. Like I wasn't at 25 when I was, you know, in the NFL, I wasn't playing because of the day before. I was playing because of 10 years earlier. Like, you know, I did this work, bro. You don't get to make this tackle on me. You know, you don't get to get, you know, like you don't get to block me today. And that's this, this, this compounding effect over time that just built this. And I have that still. Like people think like, oh, he's happy and I'm a happy guy. Don't get it twisted though, man. When it comes to work, there's like that switch that has to flip on. But that's where it does come from that dark. You have to pull from the things that motivate you. It's not always a joyous spot for me. Sometimes it's looking at my kids and realizing like, man, I could have it way worse. Or looking at like my past and saying, you know what, I, and this is truth for me. At this age of my life, I'm very aware that I, I want to be desired. I want to be wanted. 
But the thing is, it's because of a childhood thing. My mom didn't want me. Like, you know, my mom didn't care for me. And so because of that, when I show up now, it's like I do these things, but I'm doing them because I'm serving people to get the thank yous that make me feel desired. So it's a weird, I call it a weird sense of selfishness. Like, I selfishly want your thank you. I want you to say, I appreciate you and thank you. But I only get that when I show up big and heavy to serve you. And that surfeit isn't always from joy, man. Sometimes it's from like, I don't want to get off this planet and, and have a drip drop left in me. Dude, that, that is, that's some deep shit. So I don't know how much you've looked into Buddhism. Um, I have a very conflicted relationship with it. And, and I want to be very clear. I have a surface level understanding of Buddhism. I do not claim to have like some deep uh, theological or spiritual understanding of Buddhism. But I went into Eastern religion really hard um, as a teenager and in my early 20s. I self-identified as a Taoist for a while. That just there was something about the way that they approached the world that I found very compelling, which was all a, an echo of Yoda for me, which was sort of how I got obsessed with that ideology. And one of the things, though, that always made me stop short of really embracing Buddhism was the sense of trying to transcend the mud of the human existence and I wondered, I, now I can put the words to it. How much of this was really um, conscious in my mind and in my early 20s, I, I won't speak to. But now looking back, I realize the energy that you get from fuck that, I'm not leaving life without having spent everything is mm -hmm. the thing that made me look at all suffering is born of desire. I'm actually willing to embrace that, right? The, the whole mm -hmm. Buddhist notion that merely wanting something is what causes the pain when you're unable to achieve it. And when you achieve that, you're always going to want to achieve the next thing. And, and so it becomes mm -hmm. this sort of vicious cycle. But it yeah. also means that I am, I am bringing my will to the table. And what I will define as the, the entire meaning of life is to see how much of your potential you can turn into actual usable, tangible skill set, right? Mm. Which to me is what your journey has really been about is like, I'm actually... I have all this raw potential as this skinny kid because I'm sure yeah. people just assume that you're naturally built like a truck, uh, but of course you were <laughs> yeah. not. And you put all this time and energy into getting faster, stronger, tougher, and that equates to you know a career that only a few hundred people at any one time are able to have in the NFL. So it's it's you know this really extraordinary um, transition of potential to actual ability. And yeah. I found that if I didn't want something with a, an almost uncomfortable level of obsessive desire, I, I didn't push myself hard enough to get it. all the way there. So I was able to look at Buddhism and go, I get it. I agree with you that the suffering is coming from my desire to be something more than I am, to have more than what I have. Yeah. But also the cool shit in my life comes from just knowingly bathing in that like yeah. desire and how it, it fills you. It's, uh, it's a different it kind of drive. Interesting. You know what it is? I think a lot of people genuinely are scared of that. Like, I don't, I don't think the separator for a lot of people, this is what the work I do now, it's not the tools and techniques, it's like, is the technician sound? Can the technician dive into those waters? And the people hear it all day long, like, oh, you gotta work hard or do crazy stuff. But like, because of my upbringing and like being comfortable in that, we'll call it that darkness. And then in football, you're, you're bathed in discomfort every play. Like you're just, every play, it's someone running at you, they wanna hit you as hard as they can. After a while, it's like you find a sense of ease within it. And so like you're talking about, if it doesn't make me uncomfortable to the point of like, I got to pull on that, I feel uncomfortable. It's a weird level. So where most people are, have discomfort, I find a grace and a comfort. I, I like it. It's weird. And it's, it's like, lo and behold, they're successful. It's not an accident. It's like I spent more time where you don't want to go. 
But when you can go to that place and get used to it and get comfortable with it, it's like your demons become your assets. They become your allies. And it doesn't have to always be bad. I'm not coming out of the world and being mean or negative when I do it. Sometimes it's me sitting back, like showing up, like I got to I got to work my tail off today. I got to show up even when I'm tired. I'm on a road trip right now. I'm going to show up for people still. Right. Like there's a, a sense of push, but it's not it's not this thing where you can always be comfortable. I had I so, you know, I had an argument with my wife yesterday navigating this whole thing here. But like I'm good with that, like because I know I know that this is where I get to show up the best, right? And so when people are trying to seek that comfort at all times to get the success, you're automatically setting yourself up for failure. Try to find the things that make you incredibly uncomfortable and get normalized to it. That uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of power in that. One thing that I am curious about is why do you think? that when you have this um, hurt or anger or sense of rejection, that it manifests as anger or aggression. Um, mm -hmm. It seems pretty universal. And even when you put it in context of what's happening right now with people lashing out between peaceful protests versus mm -hmm. rioting versus looting, like, I mean, there is, there is definitely yeah. a sense of like, yo, if you if you ask people to hold that in long enough, it will manifest as aggression. It will manifest as violence. Yeah. Why, why is that the manifestation? I think because there's no way to logically get it out. Well, first off, usually what happens is when people do things to you, you're not okay with it. So logically, I'm not going to do something to you I'm not already okay with you doing to me. right? So I can't do that back to you. But I'm hurt. So I want you to hurt. So how do I hurt you? Like I have to – I do bottle it. When I go out, I just – I think it's a concept of when emotions, high intelligence is low. So I think even it's societally right now, everyone's crazy emotional. There's this emotional peak. And I don't think people have any logic except for go to that baseline, the id, which is like, what's my desire right now? And my desire is just to do blank and I take off and do it. And I think about it later. Like what's like if you're arguing with your wife, you say something, you're like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean that. I was just angry. And we're not we're emotional. We're not thinking logically. And so I think we get to the point of having these things happen. And I did. I bottled it up and I bottled it up and it came out of me punching people and hitting people. One is I didn't have the, the psychological tools to communicate to get it out, right, to be able to, to talk it out, we'll call it. And, and usually that's a slower process. I want it out now. And so it's easier just to go punch a bag or punch a person and get it out now. What's crazy I found is in doing that, it doesn't go away now. You think it does, but it, 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 it didn't fix anything. I got in more trouble, you know, like it ended up being more problems. And so I started realizing that if I can try to, this is my solution for a lot of stuff. When people wrong me or do things wrong, like societally, I've had a lot of them we'll call them black moments. I've been, you know, called a nigger while driving like three, four years ago. You know, I've I've been trying to be run off the road and called like Afro Dick at the airport. Like weird stuff, right? And it's in those moments that the past and yeah, seriously, it was the weirdest. I never heard anybody call me that. That, like that is things, such a weird I can't even make that comment make sense, but okay. <laughs> it's just odd, right? So these moments like they happen and you think like I probably freaked out. But I've got to this point where in the moment I realize, like, man, like this person I'm dealing with, the way that I can not embrace that, uh, this is actually an interesting concept. When I, when I don't embrace it, this isn't for me. It might have been from, like, Gandhi. He says, you know, when, when someone tries to give you a present or a gift and you don't take it, they have to walk off with it. And it made so much sense to me. This was years ago, like, around that time when I was kind of shifting. I was like, man, so when people say things, do things, my first thought is I'm not going to take this in. Like, I'm just not going to embrace what you're trying to give me right now. You got to walk off with the logic is also I've never met an incredibly joyous, happy internal person who's trying to make me feel bad. So I almost automatically flipped to this dang, like what's going on in this guy's life that makes him feel like he needs to say that to me. Right. Like why, why would like, so I get to this place of pity and almost like almost a love and compassion for the human trying to hurt me. 
they call it, like, they call it hug your haters nowadays, right? But for me, I found that that gives me a lot of peace to progress into not getting crazy emotional, and I can make logical decisions that don't cause me to go in some weird direction. But I think for most people, they don't have that capacity. So that when it comes in, it goes out as anger. It goes out as aggression because it's all I have. I'm being given that. I got to give it back. Yeah, man. That – oh, God. So this whole problem becomes so fucking complicated because of the truth of the human condition. So um, going back to what you said earlier, it's like if someone is making me hurt, I'm going to want to make other people hurt. And so you get this um, – where it feels right to take that aggression and then put it outward. And I yeah. don't think, I, I think you're right. I think it's a high emotion and it's not people engaging the intellect, but, and here's where it really gets complicated. I think that emotions have a purpose. So when I put humans in, I, I always try to get people to understand you're having a biological experience. So mm -hmm. what do I mean by that? You have a brain and your brain is causing you to interpret the world in certain ways. It just, yeah. it is. And if you understand the way that your brain works, if you understand the just sort of inherent inclinations that it has, um, the easiest way to explain this is the brain is, it, you may not actually be living in the matrix, but your brain is creating an artificial reality. Now, how do I know that? Because if your brain were trying to present reality to you, it would simply tell you, at least visually, it would tell you the number of photons reflecting off of a given surface. Now, none of us have that experience, right? It is not a mathematical experience. So our brain goes, okay, I don't really care about the objective reality. I want to give you enough meaning to interpret here to be able to move through the world in a meaningful way. So yeah. we're having this biological experience. We're evolved creatures. So we have tendencies that have kept us alive in the past. And so when you have something like an emotion, like a propensity towards peace, love, or violence, then there's some reason that that exists. And when I think about, um, for me to go through my own physical transformation, I hate working out. I don't, I do not find it interesting or engaging in any way. You talk about that level of discomfort and having to sit in it. Yeah. Dude, every rep fucking sucks. And you only mm -hmm. make gains when you're in the reps that really hurt. It was like Muhammad yeah. Ali said, I don't even start counting until it hurts. Burns, yeah. You know, so it's like, you have that. So what I had to tap into was imagining my wife being attacked and mm -hmm. saying, am I really going to accept that I'm not strong enough to defend her? And so that was the thing that like kept me going, getting in that dark yeah. place, that anger. And so I was mm -hmm. like, whoa, anger actually really has a purpose. And if you yeah. have people submerge their arm in a bucket of ice water and try to see how long they'll leave it, if you tell them right when you want to pull it out, get angry, yell, scream obscenities, they can leave it in something like 30% longer. I've read that, and yeah. so it's like, all right, there's, there's real power in that anger. So you start putting all of this together and it's like, ooh, it can be a dangerous cocktail of the human experience. Mm -hmm. It's funny as you say that, I, I think back to my college days when I was actually preparing to run 40s for the NFL. And the thing that I used to think of was like at the other end of the 40, somebody's attacking my, my son, at a son at the time. So like this, what you're talking about literally was like a driving force for me of like why I need to go as fast as humanly possible. It's another level of emotion. Like you said, it has a purpose and it can be used if you're comfortable using it. But most people, they, they run away from it so frequently. It's like they just seek the, 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 the joy. And I hate that because at the same time as you're seeking that joy, like you don't realize the most of the people are successful are telling you it's, it's in the moments outside the joy. And, but people are so afraid to get it and they keep asking, how come I'm not successful? How come I'm not successful? You're not listening. Like you're just not listening and you're not applying. And so I don't feel sorry for you at a certain point. Like I need people when I talk to them, like I'm trying to make you uncomfortable. I literally tell people like my clients, I'm like, I'm trying to stretch you. It is, um, 
it is really interesting when people begin to like really integrate. So you talk about Jung and the integration of the shadow and finding a way to um, make yourself basically a whole and understanding all of the different parts and the pieces, which I think is is really critically important. And do you know who Coleman Hughes is? I don't. Doesn't sound familiar. Oh, dude, look him up. He's really interesting. He's super young, and he just had somebody on the show, and I, I. Forgive me for not remembering this guy's name because I actually think it was the the person he had on his show that had this insight. Uh, I can't remember. But anyway, the point was you've got Martin Luther King um, with one ideology, which is using sort of this meta meta narrative of religion, Mm -hmm. unity, bringing people together, sort of love. And then you had Malcolm X, who was like, fuck this shit. Right. Like Mm -hmm. there is there's this real sort of visceral energy to rising up and black power. And they and they were talking about how why the there's so much energy to the rising up to the anger and leaning into that and how that can really animate a movement versus mm-hmm. something that's that's a more calm unity loving approach mm-hmm. and like what do you do because Coleman Hughes himself is is very sort of intellectual he's very calm and he was saying like I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to get people to catch on fire with the way that I approach the world because I don't have that sort of visceral high energy quality. And I think this is part of what we see rippling through society right mm-hmm. now is, is just being animated by anger can be so intoxicating. Like there's oh, a, yeah. like you running the 40, like me working out, there's an intoxication to rage. Yeah. And you know what's funny is that it's an intoxication of rage because that's what we're commonly used to. And we almost what it's like people here like addicted to your struggle. There's like this consistent like rage I have also with not being in a place I want to be. You mentioned earlier like that wanting is what creates this separation. I feel like this angst. And I think the the other perspective, like Martin Luther King, when you're talking about the peace, that's growth. And most people in the world to say blue collar societally, the growth isn't there. Like they're not taught as kids. That they're, you know, their parents didn't teach them. They're not looking to read the books. They're not. Peace isn't this thing that people are seeking. They just, what am I used to? I'm used to being mad because I hate my job and I hate my wife. And my kids piss me off. And then this, I got in trouble here. And like, I just, I'm living in this darkness. I'm cheating my wife. I'm cheating my husband. Like, there's this constant. So you're almost like going to a place they're already at and they're normally at, right? So it's like they can grab onto that and that pulls them. They're like, yeah, it's like that's probably where they get used to that normalcy. And it feels more, like you said, it's more intoxicating. Like when I get mad, it's easy. Like, ah, it's harder to calm myself back down to get to that place of, of joy and peace again. And so I, I think that unfortunately we're in a society now with everything going on. It's like the, the, the media helps spark it up. My brother's actually in the military and he does some things that I can't even talk about, but it's uh, he's like, we don't even realize that right now other foreign powers are injecting into our social timelines things specifically that didn't happen here to, to spark us all and divide us. And they're playing on the exact emotion you're talking about. They're playing on that anger, that angst, that 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 fire that people have to get them more fired up because that divides people. Mm-hmm. Whereas peace brings people together. And and we are in a society that shows that we have been used to divide. We've been used to that. And that that negative emotion is carried in that space. Whereas the peaceful come together, it's not commonly practiced or taught in, in ways that our society actually needs. Yeah, one thing, man, I'd love to know. So you grew up at least starting at uh, what age? 14, 13, 14 in an all-white family? Six. That's when you moved in? Oh, 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 but you just six. didn't get adopted. adopted. Yeah, got, it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, yeah. so um, walk me through what that's like. And I have a very pointed question I want to ask, and I am super curious to hear your answer. So as you grew up, did you feel that you were an like a, a person behind enemy lines? 
did you view yourself as a black man in a white family and like I need to sort of see what's going on here or was there a sense of integration or something completely different yeah so it's interesting so there's there's two sides I get to see two sides of white America I guess so growing up I, I didn't have like in the family I was loved there was never I, I couldn't even point out one singular moment where it was ever like a, a joke or negative or anything of pointing out that I was worse because I was black never once but then that's my immediate family. But then I had like my grandma. My grandma grew up in Alabama during you know the segregation area. Oof. Like she, I, she at one point I found out later like told my family like, hey, don't let you know his mom. Don't let her adopt a little black kid. Like that's above oh. me, right? Uh, and then you go to school. I mean, every day at school, I was the only one of two kids that were, looked like me in my entire elementary school. I wasn't even around black culture till high school. Right. So I got to see uh, the, the disparity between like how I was seen at school. I wasn't accepted. I wasn't the normal C. You know, you go to restaurants. There's eight of us in the family. and be like, table for seven? No, he's with us. And the, the, oh. the, yeah, the hostess would like scoff like, Ugh. like, okay. Like, so yeah, I saw it. Like, so it's kind of like I'm behind enemy lines, but I got one of the enemies guarding me, we'll call it. It's kind of the best way to explain it. But man, I got to see all of it. And I had family that was also, you know, middle-class America. I got to see the white privilege and the perspectives of it. And so I do carry a vastly different view than most people. Um, because of what I, I got to with my own eyes see for all my life, like even to now, I have aunts and uncles and in, in conversations I'm having that are very interesting, to say the least. Honestly, because it's like I see, I see the different sides in a really weird way that uh, that I, I don't even talk about. It's funny is I've talked to my wife like, at what point do I share my racial and my views of the world? Because I don't know if either side would accept them. To be honest, wow, that's interesting. Well, tell me more. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so. So here's the best thing. We'll start on one side. So I don't like to. I like to the, the, the covey. Seek first to understand them, be understood. So I want I want people to, to realize I understand that the other side. We call it the other side of white America. My best friend in the world is a white police officer. If you looked at him bald head, like just white guys, yeah, that's who he is. So people automatically assume that he's like one of the bad guys. He's not, right? So I have that side. I have all my family. I have you know the, the, the dynamics. And so what happens is now the conversations is. I see the plight of white America right now in a sense of there's a lot of guilt that is completely misunderstood because it's like he's like i didn't do anything and my, my family's like i didn't do anything i don't know how to feel guilty with this right now i didn't i wasn't a slave driver i didn't do x i didn't do y i didn't do z and so i get the pain of like how do you feel guilty for something you didn't intentionally do it's like you were born into it like when you're born you don't know you're breathing air you're just breathing air but when you're born into that world you don't realize what it is and and so there's that part of that side but then there's also you know the aspect of of like they've been in the conversations when there's no black people around. Like they, they tell me about how they go sometimes. So like they kind of also get it at the same time. So part of me is like I, I'm, I'm onboarding a lot of the emotion uh, of my white friends and like my white family members of like trying to really feel like how do we do the thing that, that they're talking about is like make this world better. How do I how what do I say? The hardest part is like, Tom, I've got people who I know have golden hearts, but they're deathly afraid of saying anything they want to support. But like, I don't I don't want to say if I say, you know, black lives matter to say, what do you know about it? If I say all lives matter then they say, how dare you? If I say I support you, show me your support. If you're doing something, why weren't you doing it 10 years ago? Like so where so it's like, where do they get to the point of like, I want to speak out because the system's not going to be changed by us. We're not in control of the system. And so it's like there's got to be a perspective of, uh, I think, black America understanding the position that white America's in. Yes, be pissed and be angry. We're up here. We've got to get to a logic at some point that says, let me see what they're going through so I can actually give sound advice of how we can move forwards, right? 
But then you also have the flip side of black America that's just pissed because like, how'd you not know? How could you do this? And this has been going on and we've been saying something and we were kneeling and nobody listened. And so I also get that. I've had my black moments, but I 100 percent feel it and I get it. And like, I'm not even going to say that that, you know, writing and everything was bad. I wouldn't do it. I'm not going to say it's right. I'm not going to say it's wrong, because like you said, it's their expression of emotion. I can't I can't gauge or tell you what's right or wrong. I can tell you I wouldn't do it because I don't think it's going to help me personally, but I'm not going to condemn them for doing it. And it's also this weird, vicious cycle of the emotion that they have. It's placed in a position where I don't think that we have this thing that if somebody walked out of a building and said, hey, all right, we're doing this, everybody would turn around and walk away. I don't know what that solution is. And I think societally, until we have that solution, we're all going to be emotional and spinning our wheels. So when I have conversations with my white friends, they're like, well, look, you know, this is why we look at them like this, because they're out looting. Look what the media shows. and Look what they're doing. I'm like. But I totally get that. It, it, it gives me a perspective like, okay, it makes me look bad. And if I'm in a situation later with a police officer, they're looking at the news in their head before they walk up to my car. It's like I, that, that's a sucky situation. And it's this weird conversation I've been having on both sides of we have to really get to a point of stepping back for a moment and seeing like what work do we got to do? And it's not the same work. Like that's the scary part is it's kind of like uh, – Imagine if like if me and my wife, for example, we're back together, right? At one point I had a woman that lived with me in my house and she lived with somebody else at her house, another man. I didn't want to go into her house because there's a guy that lived there and she's not going to come to my house. There's a woman that lived here. Both our houses aren't where the other person wants to be. But we had to go create a new house, which means I had to get rid of some stuff, do some work I didn't want to do, same vice versa. And I think the work we're going to have to do societally is going to be like, like starting a new house. And that house that we build is going to be two parties doing stuff they don't want to do because here's the thing. If I was building something with my buddies and we're just doing our thing, like we're all going to build this house we're going to live in. If I sat down and yelled at you because you had a nicer house to keep building, I'm going to sit here and drink a beer. When that house is built, you don't have respect for me to live in that house. Like it's like, all right, but yeah, the whole time we're there, you're going to say, well, you didn't build this. I built this, right? So it's like we really got to get get to the point of like, yes, black America's pissed because of the situation what took place. But now you got to wake up and like, all right, we got to work. Like, we got to work. And white America is saying, well, you know, we, we didn't do this on purpose, whatever. It's like, okay, now, yeah, you, but you got to work to help us with these different situations. And I don't know what that work looks like, but I do know we got to build a house together. And I do know we have to, at some point, like in my marriage, I had to forgive. Like, I had to, like, I got back with a woman who cheated on me, right? Like, people don't get that. I had to grasp that it wasn't a malicious thing, it was just doing the best that, that, that she could. And so now it's like this concept, I think society is like people have to grasp that white America wasn't doing it, all of them maliciously, but like we now got to, to, to breathe and move to something new. And like last poignant thought is the people who have created this system, that's, it's a created system. Let I me mean, look back at you know, systematic racism. It's created. You can't deny it. It's on paper. I've, I've seen deeds that say don't sell this house to a black family, right? I've seen Bananas. it. And so when you look at that, it's like the people who created the system, they're faceless. Like it's worse is like my, my white police officer friend, Tom, you, you're the one that's the face of this. Like you're getting the flack and it's like, I didn't do all this. Like there's, there's people above me that are in situations and places you'll never see their faces. But the lower level white America will call who's not the top tier 1% everything. Those are the ones taking the brunt of the hit right now. And that I feel plight for too. Because like, like there's a lot of impoverished white families also. Like I grew up in one, you know. So it's not like everybody because they're white's winning. And so it's this kind of conversation of uh, back and forth of like, man, I feel the pain of, the, of, of white America and I feel the pain of black America. But I'm not, and I'm not neutral in a sense of like, I don't know which side to choose. Like, I know the side that is like, this is how to change. But the thing is, how do we get there? 
because I'm able to manage emotion, I'm like, all right, everybody's pissed, and I get that. I'm I'm 100% for it all. How to fix it now? And fixing it is not going to happen just by yelling all day long. Fix it's going to be like, all right, I got to get up and I got to shoot to be a doctor or a lawyer or to be a, a you know some other job than a rapper or you know being a, a pro athlete or, or bust. Right? There's got to be that in between that society and Black America is like, all right, let's take advantage of the opportunities. But then on the flip side, like white America has to give us a shot also. Like if the name says Jaquan and then there's John, like pull Jaquan in also, you know, like like look at his resume. There's there's certain, you know, uh, aspects of the whole society that we're both going to have to give. We're going to have to do things that we're not used to doing in order to forget this, this place that we want to get to, I think. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Dude, what I love about what you just said is this shit is complicated. This shit is Beyond. complicated. And once we get out of the and and like you, I get it, the the intoxication of rage, of certainty, of just knowing that there are injustices and focusing on that and not realizing what the end goal is. And that to me, like, so I have something in my business that I call the physics of progress, which is very simply just how do you make progress in anything? And it's, it is a really simple formula in my estimation. And it goes like this. What is your goal? Like crazy specific. I want to be um, the number one linebacker for the New Orleans Saints, like whatever. But like, dude, crazy specific. You, what mm-hmm. team? By when? How much? Like, 
a really specific goal. Then what is the very specific problem that stands in that way? And then mm-hmm. what is the, um, what I call a lever action? So something that is entirely binary, either do it or you don't. So when you mm-hmm. think about what made you a great football player, it was, I went in and I worked out, I lifted weights so I could get stronger. I did cardio so that I could get faster. Um, I studied tape so that I could understand the game better. Like they're very, very specific things. Either you did them or you didn't do them. So it, it, it wasn't, you didn't say something like get better, work harder. You said, wake up at 5 a.m. and go until you can do, you know, 20 reps of 225 pound bench press. Okay, cool. That's specific, right? I'm going to lift every day and I'm going to constantly try to, you know, push my max. And even these are vaguer than I would like them if I really sat down and okay. thought about them. It is, yeah. it is exactly things you either do or do not do. So, and then you have to know what data you're going to look at to assess whether or not it worked. Make your progress, yeah. Right. And so then you can move forward. If any one of those things is vague, if you don't know what data you're looking at to assess whether or not you're making progress, or you throw data out the window, or you take emotion or feeling as an example, I heard somebody say, like, an, as long as whoever is most outraged is considered most right, then we're never going to make progress. Because it's like, what metric are you going to steer by? And if we can get behind the goal, the problem, the test, right, the lever action, and Mm -hmm. then the actual data that we're going to look at this as we either are or aren't making progress, then, okay, now we've got specific shit to fight about. And that then we can actually begin to make progress. This is exactly how I run the business so that no one is just steering by gut feel because, dude, gut feel can be a tragedy 30 years down the road. And then you've lost a whole generation. It's fucking scary. But what you're saying about like, hey, we have to build a house together. That shit is interesting. So you've literally built a house with somebody that you had a pretty, uh, pretty big beef with, I would say. So Mm -hmm. how the fuck did you navigate that? How did you um, step back up to the table and begin the conversation? How did you begin to forgive? What did you have to forgive? Like, how did you guys move forward? Yeah, man. First is owner. Literally, I talk about this all the time. First is ownership on my end, right? Because a lot of it I want to blame. We talked about hurt people, hurt people. I was hurt. I shamed her. All your fault. And then I realized when I when I came out of the NFL, I tried to find my identity again. I started this gym and I was there 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. And so I realized that there was a point of process like where the two of us got to a point where she felt she had to make a choice. That was half me. I'd take my ownership of the situation at hand. Even if I liked or didn't like it, it usually came with some pain. I had to own it, right? Uh, and so that was the first part of it. Second part of it was uh, accepting that she had done work. Like, I think there's the part of like people that you didn't do enough work. Like, it's not about like the work that I think you did. Like, did you do enough work to accept that you did the work that was hard for you to do? And when I realized that was part of it now, I was like, all right, now we got to build something. But I go into this realizing beforehand, I am not going to like a lot of this. Like, I'm not, it's just, it's just no way I'm going to like all the steps of doing this, like getting back in bed with her. That was a hard one in the beginning to be totally honest. Right. It's like, Someone that someone else has been in my wife, like it's a just be you know honest, like it's tough to sit with these things. But here's the biggest thing I love what you talked about having this metric for me. Here was my I call it North Star. I pictured myself at 65 70 sitting in my house in my rocking chair, we'll call it, and I pictured her there with me. That was it. That was seriously, that's it. So, all the conversation with my friends about why I shouldn't be with her. I had realized, like, is it getting me closer or farther away from that that rocking chair moment? Uh, if there were certain things I had to overcome, like I knew the journey that it wasn't going to be like it was going to be this, and you know, to get to that that north star. And so for me, I accepted the long haul process of what it's going to take to get to that point later on. And so every single decision I made, I stepped in and I pulled from that darkness of like, I hate this right now, but all right, I'm going to give her a massage. Like, sounds odd, right? But it's like. 
these little things. And the more you do them, I think what's cool about us as humans, we have that investment bias. And the beautiful part is the more I give to something, the more I want a return. Like love is a verb as much as it's a feeling. If I give love, I feel that love. That's why I'll, I'll, I'll change a baby's diaper and they'll poop and scream and cry. But I still love them because I'm giving this love, right? And so that was my process of consistently mucking it and getting used to it and engaging. And then after a while, it becomes a pure joy. Like I go through it five times over to get to where I'm at again today. But like the part of the process of it was like, man, where's my fault that I can truly own? And am I going to show up every single day and do work I really don't want to do, but I know that it's getting me closer to this, this North Star. And the more we do that, the, the, the harder things you do, it makes the hard things easy. And then it becomes easier and it becomes normalcy. And what's cool is everything else drowns out. Because a lot of the reasons we don't do things are things we have in our head conversationally of what's somebody going to think of me and why are they going to say that? How do I look you know, this way? Like I got a lot of people in my life that are friends that are white that still won't accept that there's something off. And I don't think that it's like that they don't see it. I think it's this ego, still the internal things of like, but if I accept that it's off, then I may feel bad because I might have to admit that I'm wrong. Like it's these all these thoughts. And it's like if you just chuck that away and say, hey, where do you want to be 60 years from now? I think that's the thing is when I, I think about um, the conversation that I've been having, I've been trying to tell like the, the friends of mine who are white and they call me because I'm apparently Mr. Black guy now. I tell them, look, you're, you're not really like you are, but you're not fighting for Black Lives Matter. Even if you say you are, what you're fighting for is a future that you see where Black Lives Matter. And when that becomes your North Star, that's going to change the conversations in the home. It's going to change the conversations at work. It's going to change how you see people. Because it's, it's like it can't be anchored in this one individual thought of like Black Lives Matter. Because like you said, what does it look like? Right. But if I'm looking at a far shoot where it's just like it's a buy. Like, yeah. Black Lives Matter. Like what do you have a conversation? Now I'll do that icky mucky back and forth up and down work that no one wants to do. That will eventually get us there as a society. Yeah, man, it is. um when you talk about having to do the work that's uncomfortable that you don't want to do, having the North star of something that matters to you enough to fight for becomes so important. And I want to understand, like, as you were going through this, why was that North star so important for you? Was it the kids? Like, why not find somebody new? I tried, man. You know, (laughs) Believe me, I tried. I think it wasn't that I had to go. I was addicted. It was, the thing is, it wasn't for the kids. It was when I – here's the truth how it happened. We got to this point where, like, we were separate. Like, we were completely separate. Like, I'm done, done, done with her. I'm not even, like, wanting to be around her. And she invited me to this uh, – to a trip of vacation in Costa Rica. And so what happened was I got to this point in Costa Rica where we show up. She had a different room. I had a different room. And she's like, hey, I just want to go take a trip because I want to hit the kids out of town. But I know you can't be gone for three weeks from the kids because I love my kids. Like, yeah, so we get there and I hadn't really talked to her about anything for a long time. I just been fighting with her back and forth. And the way I explain is I got to meet someone for the first time that I'd known for 16 years. Like she had done, you could tell she did the work. So then what happened was I came home after this trip and like I got to do this whole new soul. And I was like, man, that's the woman that I married, the one that I thought I married, the one I wanted to marry. And like, and I was, I was actually talking to another woman at the time. And before this date, she's like, hey, I want to try it again. She ruined the date, obviously, because it's the back of my head. And so the thought was like, man, this thing that I, I've been saying I wanted for so long, we've been fighting about for so long, like it's now here and present. And I'm gonna, if I'm going to lean into this, I have to be able to say, why am I going to do this past the conversations with my friends and my family? 
who have been there while she did this to me, right? How am I going to be able to stand up in front of my world and say, look, I'm taking this woman back who cheated on me, right? How am I? And so all those things were very, very hard thoughts. Like just the thought of it even now, I'm like, man, that sounds kind of odd. How do you do that? It would have never happened if I didn't know why I was doing it. And not the why that was a motivation why. The why is like where I'm trying to get to why. There's a thing there's a difference. There's a why that's like, man, I'm getting it because I don't want to be this. But I was like, no, I want to be sitting in this rocking chair. And that carried weight. And I think it carried weight for me because of like my, you know, kind of upbringing. I didn't have the unity of a family and I wanted that family. If anything, for me, it's like my family unit is my anchor because I didn't have it growing up. And so that, that's what I wanted. But in doing that, it wasn't sacrificing what I wanted. And, and you know, and, and, and like I still there's certain things I want out of my marriage and, and we bicker and fight because we're human. Right. But the thing is, we now understand where we're trying to go and why things take place and how they happened. And I think if you apply it to our society now, it's like you, you now are like we've wanted this for a long time. And I think now more than ever, it's a weird I get chills thinking about it. We're in a society where I think white America is finally in a place where black Americans wanted us to be for so long. And it's like now we got to create this union to where we can say, like, what does it look like? Because, yes, like this is the first I've had people like I've seen videos of little girls confronting their racist dads with a camera hidden. Like that's that's I think that's where it changes. If you think of like the LT, LGBTQ movement, like it was always fun to say, you know, derogatory names to people who are in that realm. And it was just like a playful thing. And after a while, it got to the point where if you say something in public, Tom, somebody you don't even know is going to be on you. Don't do that. How dare you? Right. It's never been that way in my experience for racism. It's where like if there's not even a gay person in the room, like if I'm in a room with no gay people and somebody says something, someone's saying something to them. Right. Where now I think it's going to be a society I'm seeing a little bit of a glimpse of it of like there may be no black people in the room. But if Uncle Bob or Billy Joe says something like Susan's going to shut him down. And that for me was like, oh, that's different. And that's me saying this is like my wife when she came back to the table, like, all right, she's coming back. She's saying she wants now let's work on this together. What's our North Star? And then we could build this marriage together. I think society, we're at a place where we can really build a cool marriage together. But we got to like I did. I got to forgive and not forget, but forgive. So that this person can do the work because here was the thing. What I believe gave her the space of, of growing herself was I stopped shaming her. Because I for a lot of years, it's all your fault. How dare you mess our marriage up and you ruined our family. And she got shamed. She was drinking and boozing and partying and everything. And when I finally was like, man, I, I had a part in this. I forgive you. She could grow. And she started blossoming into amazing. I love her to death, man. Like, and I think that's what we can do with society is like we've, we've got to this point of like, okay, cool. And now society's moving. So I just, on my side, I'm like, black America, don't mess this up. <laughs> like, like, let's go to work now. And we got to show up and we got to take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of us. We got to do more work. Like, I tell people all the time, they're like, why aren't you more vocal about black America out there? And I'm like, to be honest, I've been trying to be a light. Like, I know when I walk into a room, we walk in our mastermind, there's very few people that look like me. I'm well aware of it. But I don't show up and live in that space and talk about it all day. I just do the work. And it is harder for me. There are places I don't get to go and conversations I don't get to have and, you know, certain aspects of what I'm, I'm able to do, clients I get to bring on and don't bring on because of how I look. I'm aware of it, but I just work harder and I do it without a disdain because of the position. I'm like, if I'm going to play the game and I know the rules, I'm going to be better than you. Football, same way. I'm just going to get better than you. And so I've been getting better and better and better. And so, yeah, I'm in a position where like I can keep growing. And so now I'm like, man, I want to fight the fight by climbing. So I can show these kids like you don't just got to be an athlete and that to be successful. I did that and it was short lived. But now I'm doing this like so find other ways. And so if I can be a beacon and, and talk about like, hey, 
yeah, you're going to have to work harder than, than white America, but do the work. <laughs> it's worth it. Like, and they're going to give you a shot a little bit more now and the game's changed. Like, we got to show up and do our work. We can't be the person sitting there, watch them build the house and then get to the point of like, all right, I'm living here too. Like, it's not going to work that way. Man, speaking of like the sort of come up and, and how you think about the coming together, having kids has got to feel um, there's got to be a lot of weight to like, how do I help them navigate this Scary. so that when they're, you know, sort of moving into the house that they are building the house and, and they're building yeah. something that matters or maybe the better way to think of it is they have a North Star that makes sense. And, and I'll, yeah. I'll bring it back to the way I think about the world where they have just like a super clearly defined goal and they know what they're trying to do. One thing that I've always struggled with with kids, and I, I see a lot in your story, is when you have to come up hard, there there is a sense of drive that's there. And one of the reasons I didn't have kids was I was worried they would grow up really soft because mm -hmm. I really, 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 and I learned this with the kid that I big brothered for who came up fucking hard, was yeah. that I just wanted to make everything easy for him. I wanted yeah. him to have a taste of, of beautiful things and nice things and to know that somebody loved him. And I just thought, ooh, like the better path is to teach people to struggle well. So yeah. how do you how do you think about that with your kids? Like how do you how do you give them the the energy to push when things get hard when they've been loved? And trust me when I say I am not saying neglect uh kids yeah. or give them a hard time like that. I'm just no, saying no, no. it's fucking hard when yeah. when there isn't something to struggle against. So yeah. how do you how do you love them and still hold them accountable? Yeah, man, I, uh, I, I love the statement that people always ask, uh, like, how do you do what I say? You know what, a smooth sea makes not a skilled sailor. Like, there's this concept to me of like, man, I hated at the time all the stuff I went through, but now, dude, nothing knocks me over time. It's a weirdness to who I am as a human. There are very few things that'll, like, at this point in my life, I don't know what would knock me over. Like, I just, I'm able to navigate it, but it's because of what I went through as a kid, where like the, the stuff that would be like a blip in my radar shuts some adults down. Like, how does that, oh, and I have to have compassion, go back and pick them up. Now, my kids, I realize, like, I can't rob them of their hardships. Can't do it. Like, my son was getting picked on at school a few years back, and, like, my wife hopped in a car and drove down there to, like, save him on the street. I'm like, no, let him get beat up and then figure out how to navigate that. Like, she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, he, need, he needs to figure this world out because at 18, he's gone. And I'm not going to be there in the Taco Bell when somebody starts punking him or touching his girlfriend. You're know, like, I'm not going to be there. He's got to figure these things out. Or like my my. Uh, my I, son, I have to stop you there. What yeah. what did you say to him? Oh, like, did him. you tell him, hey, somebody punches you, touches your girl, whatever, you punch him in the mouth? Oh, hell yes. I, I'm a guy. I'm not a proponent of you don't start the fight. But if somebody if somebody touches you, if physically put their hands on you, you finish that fight in the next 20 right then and there. Like, it's just my, my thought on life, and it's not that I – because people will do it. They'll test you, and if they get you this time, they'll get you tomorrow and the next day. And now you become fun for them to figure out how to be a punching bag. So I'm like, no, no, no. Like, if somebody does it, you figure it out. And he did. Like, he ended up – like, the next – like, I think it happened the next week, and he ended up wrestling the kid down and got in trouble. And I bought him ice cream. <laughs> like, it's totally cool. But that's the perspective of, like – and so I need them to understand that there is a celebration in showing up for yourself and fighting and navigating the hard parts. But I mean, it goes like doing the dishes every day, clean the dog poop up. Like I can't find something in the garage. Go open your eyes and find it. And it's not that I'm lazy, but like I'm consciously thinking about every moment I'm having with my children and, and how are they going to be able to problem solve and navigate stuff and not shut down? Because the problem is not only is it a problem when you get older and not have had hardships, 
but you have more responsibilities as an adult. So when you can't stand up, you lose more. As a kid, it's like, I'm a kid, so I get a bad grade. As an adult, it's like, you get messed up and like you can't compose yourself. You lose your family and your wife, you're drinking, you're like, because you have access and money and time, like way more problems occur. So I, I need my kids to have a bad childhood in a sense of like the bad moments, but I need them to have like good teaching for me. So like I'll guide you, I'm gonna teach you what happens or how to navigate this, but I need you to go through it and hate it. I need you to get comfortable in that difficulty. Because my wife and I talk about this all the time. My youngest son has ADHD, same as I had, bad little bounce off the wall kid. She's like, you're fine, he's gonna be fine. I'm like, yeah, the problem is, like I had people whooping me when I would do dumb stuff. Like, I'm not saying it was good, but it taught me how to like control myself more. Whereas for him, like he is a maniac. And if he's if he doesn't have that hardship, she's like, well, you played football, you had that energy. I'm like, yeah, but I had a chip, man. Like I was fighting for more than just the football jersey. This kid knows that if he has a bad game, he gets to go home and get a Slurpee. It's a different it's a different thing he's driving for us, which scares me. So like I, uh, to be honest, like I'm purposely harder on my youngest one. And I'm doing it because I love him and he doesn't get it yet. But like I'm, I'm tougher on him. I make him do stuff more. I need him to get used to the discomfort and like control, control, control. Because I tell him, I tell him all the time, I have a superpower as does he. As I'm sure you have the same one. You just, you probably got a scatterbrain and it just, you hone it in and you just go, right? It's because that kind of personality, when you make it to adulthood with the right skill sets and, and right situations, you blossom. Like I've told him at 10 years old, you're going to be more successful than I ever was, to be totally honest. But we got to get you to a place in time where you can you know, access that and utilize it. But if you get in trouble because you can't get through high school or you get arrested for something stupid, it's all gone. So let's get you there. And then Brahma let you out of the gates. So that's kind of where I, but I need the kids to understand. I need parents who are listed to understand. Stop robbing your kids that are hardships. If anything, give them more and be a great teacher. Ooh, dude, the power of the family is crazy. So at yeah. Quest, we had a thousand employees that grew up really fucking hard, dude, hard. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. you know, hard. And I thought I knew hard until I met these kids. And I was like, holy fuck, like the way that they think about the world. Like, I remember one kid saying, I have actually been told to my face by my mother, the world doesn't want people like you to succeed. And I was like, what? Like yeah. it is, that's so unintentionally, obviously, but it's so handicapping to say, don't yes. extend yourself like that. Don't try for that. That's, that's beyond you. People don't want us to, to succeed. And so that became my obsession is how do you get people to go into, and, and I was going to say to step to the starting line, but that really isn't where I want people. How do you get them to go into the gym? And be like, all right, motherfucker, you think you're going to hold me back? Like, I'm going to fucking blow the roof off this shit. It, it's crazy. The the literacy rates, some, oh, God, here's, I'm, I'm, I am not the wise person that's going to see us through. I have fuck all for wisdom when it comes to race. But, like, clearly with all this happening, like, I'm fucking diving in and trying to, like, really yeah, actually get my bearings. Say that about, again? What you're saying has a definite psychology to it. I, I'm tracking you 100% right now. So you have, uh, it was like a hundred years after slavery, the literacy rates at, at a time where the America was trying to hold black people back. Like, mm -hmm. I think that that's pretty self-evident. Yeah. So, but the literacy rates were astronomical because people were like, yo, I didn't get it. I'm going to make sure my fucking kids get it. And mm -hmm. I think it was, it was something like, oh God, I don't remember the day. It's not like this is terrible. <laughs> but there was 
roughly 100 years after slavery, it was like um, the kids, African-American kids growing up in a single parent household was like 20 percent. And now it's like 70 percent. So mm-hmm. it's like, fuck, if if it is true that having the family unit is so critical and I'm, I'm triggering off of all the things you just said, all the things I hear you talking about teaching your kids. And I'm like, Jesus, if you only have half of that equation doesn't mean that people aren't killing it. But I'd much rather be in a space where I've got multiple people giving me rad fucking advice and pushing me forward. So it is so thinking about sort of those second and third order consequences of how do we really get people that are able to develop those skills that they're not getting stupid messages that that stop them from even beginning the pursuit of Mm -hmm. personal greatness. Yeah, it's a you know, it's funny. You remember the book Good to Great, right? Yeah. Read it before? Yeah, man. uh, I think one of the first ones is like feeling like you're a burden to the world. So what you just talked about is actually definitive. I, I think and people have asked me, like, what's your perspective on, you know, grow up in a white family? And I think one of the benefits to it was that I wasn't handicapped with the conversation uh, that came from an old black grandma or grandpa who dealt with that experience. And they would say, like you're saying, you know, you're, you're not supposed to do well. The side doesn't want to see you do well. So there's always that thought of, like, I'm a burden from the get-go. And so, like, that wasn't part of, of my upbringing. I think that was an asset to me. Because I just saw it as I got to work and I got to grind. But but what you're talking about, societally, we have this conversation running. And, and, I, and I don't this can go conspiracy or non-conspiracy. But if you look at like where drugs were, you know, kind of introduced to the to inner cities and, and kind of how families were torn apart and like the jailing system. And so it's like there was almost like a, a like you're saying, the numbers show at some point something happened that made the family fall apart because a united front is difficult to stop. And I think we even like heard about the, like the Black Wall Street 1921 when all of a sudden these whites came in and just destroyed a city, killed 3,000 people, and no one's ever been charged. Like there was a progression. Like this is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it was out of the record books that nobody put in history books like 96. Like it happened. And there's like there was a systematic piece, I think, as well to like don't let them come together because United, look what they can do. And so we are in a situation where now that's been so prevalent, and I think the conversation has to come back like you're talking about of – there is possibility. It exists. It may not be easy, but damn it, it exists. You're going to work towards something, and you're probably going to die early running around the streets with your buddies. Like, how about we, we, as opposed to making fun of the kid who's reading a book, how about we go in and push that kid to go forward? But the problem is, it's like you're trying to, we're going to have to carve a new path in a rock, like new Grand Canyon, because that's the, that's the hard part is, how do you change the structure in a society where it's like, I'm still, you know, in a gang, and I don't leave the gang unless I get jumped in and jumped out or killed, right? Or or grandma and grandpa, like, I don't want to do better than make them feel bad because I go get this job at this one place and they're, you know, making me feel bad. And it's almost in some size also in the black culture, it's like, look at how ghetto I am. It's a sensationalizing of the negative aspect of, of the culture. And so you have all these different dynamics going on and it's going to be a lot to pull them to the starting line to say, all right, here's where we got to go to work and go. And, and I think the hard thing that I'm looking at is that doesn't happen without a good leader. And I don't know that, that black America has a leader or will accept a leader. That's the problem, I think. I don't know the leader is. Like, I'm putting a lot of weight uh, in my head right now on Kaepernick. And not because he's some phenomenal you know, leader and black activist, but he's a guy that society at a, a level above the ghettos, we'll call it, is, is seeing and accepting. And he can talk, but he's also accepted because he was an athlete to the level of where like these, these youths want to be because everybody else that comes out like who are even myself included, I probably, I couldn't be a voice in that capacity. I'm not that level, but it's either like you got the guys who come out and speak to black Americans and say, look, you're the ones messing up. You're causing crimes. You're doing all this stuff, which was, it's difficult when it's systemized that way, like how they not going to be criminals to an extent, but like they get called uncle Tom's 
they don't get listened to anymore. They can't lead. You can't be a leader without followers. And so it's like America and the black America needs to find a leader who they will follow who is going in the right direction. And the problem is, is the right direction is to do work, to accept, to, to take heed, to listen and, and own the things that we don't want to own to about ourselves to get better. And you're not going to do that unless you have a leader that they'll follow. And I don't know who that is right now. That's, I think that's the, the biggest thing that scares me is like we got some traction. We can move. But who are we following? Because social media makes it worse. Now you get a million voices. And I'm a proponent of like everybody has a voice, but I don't know if everybody needs to be talking. Like some people need to just sit down and be quiet and listen, myself included at many times. And I think that's how progress takes place. But I don't, I don't know who that person is just yet. I think you're right. That is well said. Leaders are worth their fucking weight in gold. Um, I am very eager for somebody to step to the plate that has deep wisdom here. Um, the person that I mourn the loss of as just sort of a, a name I've read in a book, but um, is Nelson Mandela. So mm. reading Long Walk to Freedom, yeah. dude, have you read that shit? I've not. Uh, oh, God, great, you're going to love it so much. Mandela in prison for 27 years, he starts getting um, very militant young black men coming into the prison system who are chastising him for not being violent enough. And he said, let me be clear. Violence is an option, and I do keep that in my back pocket. If it becomes necessary, I will use it. Again, this is me in interpreting. So if I'm misrepresenting something, I'm very open to that. Um, but this is how it sounded to me. So um, I'm going to come out of all this because you give up your humanity when you oppress somebody. So it was like you saying with that gift, right? You try to give it, they don't take it. You still have to keep it. Yeah. By oppressing somebody else, you forfeit something. Forget whatever economic value you may get out of it. You're giving up some of your humanity. And I just thought, fuck, that's so intense. So I end up writing this comic um, called Neon Future. Of course, I abstract it. So it's about essentially people with... Um, cyborgs versus authentic humans and so but dealing with that notion of you've got one group of people trying to oppress the other you've got the other group where inside that group they want to just now re-oppress because they're they're technologically so much more advanced of course they could but then you have this one guy who's like no no no, hold on there's got to be this third way so like that to me is sort of a, a beacon of hope that i i cling to in all of this I like it, man. That's for, that's a good perspective because that's that's where we're at now. You know, it's literally it's almost it's odd that these are the things. These are like weird, dark times, but that's it. The only way we're going to get forward somewhere is to unify. It's literally the only way, and that and unity is not easy. It's work on both sides. We do that, and we're going to be great. Preach. All right, brother. I will let you go. Thank you so much for this, man. Yeah, really cool to connect. Uh, I look forward to actually being able to share physical space with you again at some point, which would be yeah. incredible. Uh, I'd love to, man. Yeah, count me in. I, I, I'm always down there like in L.A. I'm like, yeah, I stopped by Tom's spot. I never do. My apologies. No, man. No apologies necessary. But definitely the next time when COVID is, is done, uh, we will get together and hang out. It'd be awesome. Cool. Count me in, man. All right, everybody. If you haven't already figured out who Anthony Trucks is, get on it. You will love it. He puts out amazing, amazing content that I think will really push you forward in your own life. And speaking of things that will push you forward in your own life, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe here. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.